We're looking this morning at Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. Unless you have been living under a rock this past year, you realize that the United States is living through a deep national earthquake, not a literal earthquake. But um, metaphorically speaking, just think about it, COVID, social isolation, work and school disruptions, masking debates, presidential impeachments, conspiracy theories, political divisiveness so acute it's being compared to the lead up to the Civil War, riots, violence, destruction in cities and at the Capitol in an attempt to overturn the certification of the national election. Anger, suspicion so deep that some families can no longer get together for holiday dinners. As I stand back and I take all of this in, I think the ground under our feet in our nation is shifting. I think the landscape, the social terrain of our country is not going to be the same when all of this is over. I don't think we're going back to the way things were before. I think we're entering a new world, and I'm not sure any of us know yet what this world will be like because the dust hasn't settled yet. But here's what I suspect. I I suspect that the task of being the church and the task of witnessing to the gospel is going to be quite different in the years ahead. Just as one example, imagine two very different people that we might run into. One who believes everything they read on social media about QAnon and many of their friends believed it too. And they fully believed that on inauguration day, Trump was going to call in the National Guard and round up all of his opponents and arrest them as traitors and enemies to our country. And then it didn't happen, right? And now they've woken up to that fact and they've realized that they'd been taken that they bought into a lie. And so now they're confused, they're disoriented, they're scared, they're empty. How do we reach out to a person like that with the good news of Jesus? Now imagine a second person, someone very different, someone who leans left, someone who felt threatened by Trump for four long years, who believed that he was the enemy, And who then saw Christians stand up for Trump, saw Christians demonize other liberals, who saw Christians insist that the election was stolen and that Trump should remain president at all costs. And so now this person sees Christians as threatening and as part of the enemy. How are we going to reach out to that person with the good news about Jesus? So as we look at all of the the fallout of this past year from this cultural earthquake, and as we ask ourselves, what does it look like to be the church and to share the good news in this context that we find ourselves in, where do we start? Well, I think as Christians, we instinctively know the answer. We know that Christ is the answer, same as he's always been. Jesus is the answer for both kinds of people, for all kinds of people. And we know more specifically that it's Christ's death on the cross that we need to point people toward. 
that Jesus' death on the cross still holds the answer for everyone, everywhere. But of course, in light of all of the seriousness of, of the days we're living through, that simple answer can feel trite or glib. It can feel overly simplistic. And so what I'd like to do during the next several Sundays, the Sundays of Lent leading up to Palm Sunday and Easter, I'd like to unpack in more depth with you how and why the cross of Jesus Christ is the answer. I want to reflect with you afresh at how the cross is the answer and why the cross is the answer. And to get at the answer to these questions, we have to ask another question, and that is, why did Jesus Christ die on the cross? Why did he die? And more specifically, why was crucifixion the way that he died? What does it mean that Jesus Christ was crucified? Why does that matter? And here's the reality. The answer to that question is big and it's wonderful. Why Jesus died on the cross can be answered in a number of complementary ways, all of which add to the richness of the answer. Let me give you just a teaser uh, just to whet your appetite for what's coming up in the Sundays ahead. Why did Jesus die on a cross? He died on a cross for our sins to show us how much God loves us and how much God loves this world. Why did Jesus die on a cross? He died on a cross to set an example for us to follow of how to work out our human problems and how to, uh, or, or he died on a cross to show us the way of love and the way of servanthood. Why did Jesus die on a cross? He died on a cross as God to enter fully into and to experience the pain of human suffering and to be with us in it. Why did Jesus die on a cross? He died on a cross to defeat, to break the back of evil, sin, death, all that's dark, all that destroys. There are more reasons as well. We could go on unraveling the wonderful mystery of the cross. But in the coming weeks, we'll focus on just those five, just five reasons, plus the one we're going to look at today. And the way I'd like to do this is to invite you into a journey through two chapters of the gospel according to Matthew. Chapters 26 and 27, which tell the story of the cross and the lead up to the cross. And here's what I like to invite you to do as you follow along. For those especially who observe the season of Lent, this can be a Lenten practice for you. I encourage all of us over the next five weeks to read this story in Matthew 26 and 27 at least once each week. More, more if you can, but at least once each week. Get familiar with this story in Matthew. Think about it. Soak yourself in it. Meditate on it. It's just two chapters. Okay, let's dive in to the story. We pick up the story this morning in chapter 26 of Matthew, verses 36 to 46. I'm jumping ahead a bit, and next Sunday we'll actually go back and we'll look at verses 20 to 30 
where Jesus gathered with his closest followers in an upper room and celebrated with them what we now call the Last Supper. For them, it was a Passover meal. And at that meal, Jesus offered bread to them as his body. And he offered a cup as his blood poured out. In that meal, Jesus was preparing them for his death on the cross and what it would mean. And at that meal also, as we'll see next week, Jesus predicted one of you, one of my closest friends here at the table with me will betray me. And the rest of you will deny me. You will run away. You will leave me all alone, abandoned in the moment that I need you most. And so that's what's already happened earlier in the evening leading up to today's story. Now, later the same evening after dinner, Jesus has gone with his followers to a quiet, secluded garden called Gethsemane. Jesus goes there to pray and to encourage his followers to pray as well, that they won't give in to temptation to pray that they won't buckle under the pressure of what they're all about to endure and that they won't prove unfaithful, unfaithful to Jesus and unfaithful to God. But guess what? They wind up doing all of these things Jesus's followers do. They're too sleepy to pray with Jesus. They keep nodding off and Jesus has to keep waking them up, but they keep falling back asleep again. And he warns them to watch and to pray, but they just keep failing. And so they are not spiritually prepared for all that's about to happen. And ultimately, they leave Jesus all alone, utterly alone. And as all of this unfolds, and as Jesus anticipates all that he's about to face himself, Matthew tells us in verse 37, Jesus grows sorrowful and troubled. He confides in his closest friends who have always seen him confident and fearless and hopeful. He confides in verse 38, my soul is is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Why? Why is Jesus so troubled and so sorrowful in the garden? Is it just because his feelings are hurt? Because his closest friends are in the process of turning on him or letting him down? Is it because he fears that he's about to suffer and even die on a cross? Well, yes, in part, I think it's both of these things. But, you know, historians have have pointed out that many great men and women over the millennia have faced death with courage, with calm, with peace, with resolve. And that's not true of Jesus here. And yet we'd expect, given how great Jesus was, that if anyone could face death with courage and calm, it would be Jesus, right? Why is Jesus so troubled, so sorrowful? Is there more going on here than just the fear and the hurt of abandonment and suffering and death? Well, we find out in what happens next as Jesus falls with his face to the ground and he prays to God, his heavenly father, verse 39. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. May this cup 
be taken from me. What cup? Not a literal cup, right? There's no literal cup in the story in the garden. So the cup must be a metaphor. It must be a symbol for something. What is the symbolic cup that Jesus prays will be taken from him? Well, let's keep reading. Look down at verse 42. Matthew tells us that Jesus prays three times, asking his heavenly father, if there's a way for this cup to be taken from him. And in verse 42, Matthew gives us Jesus' exact words the second time he prays to the father. Jesus prays, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken from me unless I drink it, may your will be done. Unless I drink it, the cup that Jesus wants taken away is one that otherwise he will need to drink. What is the cup that Jesus will need to drink? Well, the answer isn't difficult. All you have to do to begin to get the answer is keep reading the story. What in fact happens to Jesus as as you keep reading to chapter 27? Well, Jesus is arrested. He's tried. He's convicted in a Roman court. He's mocked, stripped naked, humiliated, beaten, spit upon, struck, and ultimately executed on a cross. And for anyone living at the time of Jesus, all of this was a brutal reminder of the world that they were living in, a Roman world, a world where the oppressive Roman Empire ruled with an iron fist. And the absolute worst thing that the Romans could do to you The thing they reserved only for the worst of their slaves and traitors to Rome was that they could crucify you. Crucifixion was degrading. It was shameful. It was humiliating. It was the ultimate of cruelty, the ultimate of contempt, the ultimate of cancel culture. It said, you don't matter. You're not even a real human being. You don't deserve to exist. You have no rights. We're going to make you an example and take your life away from you in the most painful, degrading, and shameful way that the human mind could imagine. That was how Rome operated. That was Roman oppression. And that is what it looks like for Jesus as a victim of Rome to drink the cup. But why? Why would God let his own people, the Jewish people at the time of Jesus, be oppressed by Rome like this? And why would God let Jesus, his own son, be oppressed by Rome? Why would God allow him to drink this terrible cup? Well, to understand this, we need to keep digging deeper into what this cup is that Jesus is talking about. Because for Jesus and for God's people at the time of Jesus, the cup was a familiar biblical symbol. We may not be familiar with it today, but that's just because we don't read the Old Testament like they did. For them, the cup and drinking the cup was familiar. It was common. It was a a biblical symbol. Let me read to you, for example, from Jeremiah 25. 
here we're going back maybe 600 years before Jesus to the dark, dark time when God's people were at their worst wickedness. Um, when God was so fed up with them, with their atrocities, with their rebellion, that God was about to send them into exile to Babylon. And Jeremiah was the lucky prophet who gets to tell them this. Jeremiah recounts to them, starting in uh, chapter 25, verse 15, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom he sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a ruin and an object of horror and scorn, a curse as they are today. Also Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all the kings of the Philistines, Edom, Moab, Ammon, all the kings of Tyre and Sidon, all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. What's the cup? It's the cup of God's anger, of God's judgment toward the nations for all of the evil that they've done, first for God's own people, the Jews, and then for all the other nations of the world too. And what happens when you drink the cup? God sends the sword against you. Violence, conquest, war, exile. God makes you, in the words of verse 25, 18, we read in Jeremiah, a ruin and an object of horror and scorn, a curse. If we had more time, we could go into all of the, the terrible things that God's people and all of these other nations as well had done in the days leading up to Jeremiah's day, all the evils and the atrocities that made God angry and called for judgment. But let me ask you instead, as you've watched the news over the past year and seen all that's gone on in our nation and in our nation's government, have you ever gotten angry? I don't care which party you prefer, whether you were angry at Trump and his supporters or if you got mad at Trump's enemies, but did you get mad at any of them or maybe all of them? <laughs> well, if you got mad, I did. Let me ask you, were you mad because you have values? Because you have a sense of right and wrong? Or were you mad because you don't? Which is better when you see something terrible happen? When there's injustice, when someone is victimized, when someone perpetrates a terrible evil against someone else or against a country. Is it better to get mad at it or to say, eh, doesn't bother me? In the face of evil, it's good to get mad. It's appropriate. Our anger flows from a deep place in us that says, this is terrible. This is not right. This is not fair. Well, guess what? God gets mad like this too. And it's a good thing. It means God is watching and that God cares. 
It means God is moral. God cares about suffering. God cares about victimization. God cares when people recklessly hurt other people and ruin what's good in the world. God sees it all and God gets angry because God has heart. God cares. Now, what we hope is that God is not like the Incredible Hulk. That God doesn't just fly off the handle in a rage and recklessly start destroying everything in the way, right? We hope that God can control his anger and channel it in a positive direction with wisdom to bring about justice, to right wrongs in a responsible, helpful way. And I assure you that that is what God's anger, God's wrath is like. It's not uncontrollable rage. It's a wise, controlled, just, channeled anger. But it's still anger. It's still judgment. And Jeremiah compares it to a cup that God makes the guilty nations drink. And the result is their destruction, their punishment. That's what the cup represents in the Old Testament. Not just in Jeremiah, you can find it in Isaiah 51, you can find it in Psalm 75 and other places as well. And then in the New Testament, the book of Revelation picks up and carries forward this imagery as well. So think about this past year, all that's gone on, the rioting, the destruction, police killing unarmed black men. Crowds burning down police stations in retaliation. The killing of police officers. Accusations of election fraud. Death threats. Name calling. Hatred. People calling evil good and good evil. The lies, the twisting of the truth. Do you think it makes God mad? Do you think God is angry about it? Should any of this be brought to justice? Should there be consequences for it? Well, just multiply that across the whole world and down through the centuries. Scripture compares it to a foaming cup of wrath. And in the garden that night, this is the cup Jesus is wrestling with drinking. What would it look like to drink it? Just like Jeremiah described, it would look like becoming the victim of the sword, a ruin and an object of horror and scorn, a curse. Don't miss the fact that this is exactly what was happening to God's people in the time of Jesus through the Roman Empire, and the epitome of this the most notorious expression of this was when the Romans crucified you, which we know they did to tens of thousands of, of Jews and many others under their oppression. But why Jesus? Why would Jesus drink this cup? He was the best man who ever lived. Sure, to his siblings and to his family, I'm sure he was annoyingly perfect. But by everyone's account, Jesus was a good man, an innocent man. 
Jesus, drink the foaming cup of God's anger. He's the last person who should drink it. Why do that? Why drink it? Well, do you want to drink it? I don't want to drink it. But what if Jesus could drink it for us? So we, so the Jews, so the other nations didn't have to drink it. What if Jesus was willing, what if God was willing to not have us have to drink the cup if someone else would drink it instead? And what if Jesus was willing to be that person? Jesus tells God in our passage that he is willing. He'd rather not drink it. Can you blame him? But if it has to be drunk, if there's no other way for it to be emptied and taken away, then for someone to drink it, Jesus is willing to drink it. He's saying, God, I want, and I know you want, more than anything for people, for nations, for the world, not to have to drink the cup of your anger, of our anger. I want them not to have to be punished, destroyed for the wrongs they've done. I want them to be forgiven. And if we can make that happen by draining the cup, by taking it away some other way, let's do that. But if someone has to drink it, I am willing to drink it myself. So question, why couldn't there be another way to take away the cup? to drain the cup. Why did anyone have to drink the cup? Why did God's anger at all of the evil and the atrocity of the world have to get expressed? Why couldn't God just slough it off, just chill, just calm down? Well, let me ask you, if you think about maybe the political or the public figure who has most made you angry this past year, Maybe it's Pelosi, maybe it's Trump, maybe it's Epstein, maybe it's somebody else. Whoever it is, you feel like they have been so wicked, they have been so destructive, they have been so unfair and so wrong and so irresponsible. Let me ask you, how would you feel about them getting off scot-free? No consequences no accountability, they'll just be pardoned and life will go on for them with no justice. How does that sound? Does that sound like a good way to run the universe for those kinds of people? A good way to right wrongs, to bring unity, to resolve conflicts, to bring healing to the victims? No justice, no accountability, no acknowledgement of the seriousness of what they've done. We'll just put the cup aside. Nobody has to drink it. Well, that's not God's approach. God does not see that as the way of wisdom. God does not see letting people sin with impunity, letting people run amok with no consequences, no accountability, as a good way to run societies or the world let alone to mend our world's fractures, to bind up what's broken in our relationships. No, God says, 
There must be a rule of law, so to speak. God must be, uh, people must be held accountable. There must be truth about right and wrong, about what's been done and how wrong it's been, and there must be justice. God realizes that for the victims, if there's going to be any healing, they need to hear God say to them, I see your pain. What was done to you is so wrong, and I will make things right. And all of that, all of God's resolve to hold people accountable, to stand for truth, so the world is a fair and just place, and so wrongs can be made right, all of that is in the cup, waiting to be drunk. And here we have Jesus in the garden, troubled, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Why? Because it's time for the cup to be drunk. For the sword to be sent. For the guilty to be made a ruin and an object of horror and scorn, a curse. But yet, God is not willing and Jesus is not willing for us as humans to have to drink the cup ourselves. And so Jesus is facing the fact that he is going to drink the cup for us. Now, let me just pause for a minute and say that if today's passage was the only explanation we had of why Jesus died on the cross, we'd wind up quite likely with a very distorted picture of God. Because if all we knew about the cross was what we have here, we might conclude that God is all anger and justice, and Jesus is all mercy, and Jesus is like, no, God, don't smite them. If you insist on being wrathful, smite me instead. And that is not in any way what is going on here. Because what we have to realize as we fill in the pieces of the picture from other parts of the New Testament It's that Jesus is God too. And so Jesus and God share the same mind and the same heart. God the Father and Jesus, God the Son, both get angry at sin and evil. Just read Matthew 23 where Jesus reams out the Pharisees. Both agree that justice must be done, that accountability is important, that rule of law is important. And yet both love humanity And don't want us to have to drink the cup ourselves. And so both father and son agree that the son will drink it. And so the son will hurt and will suffer as he drinks it. And the father will hurt and suffer as the son drinks it. And because Jesus is God, this means God drinks it. God himself suffers the consequences. Wow. What love God shows on the cross. What good news. What incredible news. So what does all this mean for us that on the cross, Jesus drank the cup? What does this mean for our nation in the days and years ahead? It means when we put our trust in Jesus, if we choose to follow Jesus, 
then for us, there is nothing left in the cup. The cup is empty. The cup of anger, the cup of judgment has been drained down to the dregs. It is empty. God is not angry with us anymore. All that is left in God's heart for us is mercy, compassion, peace, a loving and forgiving heart. That's why we follow Jesus, right? Because he drank the cup for us. Well, what about for our nation? Why is Jesus' death on the cross the answer to the earthquake we're facing? That's a big question. It's going to take five weeks and more to answer. But for one thing, the cross tells us that we don't have to cry for vengeance against our enemies. We can let it go. Not because they don't deserve consequences or because what they did doesn't matter. No, what they did is a big deal. It's a huge deal. It demanded justice. But Jesus drank the cup. He paid the price for them too. And so we, as followers of Jesus, can learn to forgive. We can seek to reconcile. We can seek to bring about reconciliation between others. We can put aside animosity and with compassion, we can show the world another way. The way of love, even for one's enemies. If the church can put the cross back at the center, the cross of Jesus, if we can put it back at the center of who we are, that's how we will be able to move with good news into a broken and fractured world. Let's pray. God, um, for some of us, maybe, we have not put our trust in Jesus, and so Jesus has not drunk the cup on our behalf. And um, if that's true of us this morning, um, I just want to give a moment for anyone right now who wants to put their trust in Jesus and choose to follow him to pray something like, Jesus, I want you to drink the cup for me so that I don't have to drink it. Would you drink the cup and take away my sins? Take away the consequences, the judgment, God's anger, so that I can know peace with God, so that I can know God's love and be reconciled to him. God, for the rest of us, um, there are a lot of things vying to be at the center of the church's priorities in today's world in this nation. God, I pray that you would help us for our church to keep the cross of Jesus Christ at the center and that it would be the touchstone which determines and flavors everything else we do. And I pray that you would equip us to know how to be people of good news 
and people who articulate and model and embody good news for the world around us in the days ahead. Equip us um, to represent you well in the world that we are moving into as we come out of this earthquake. In Jesus' name.